0: He konae purangi tēnei nā te nei irirangi o Kia ora
1: e Te Aroa. Kia welcome to Country Life. I'm Duncan Smith and I'm Justin Gregory. It's great to have you company. Today, things are going sweet at Geraldine's biggest employer. It's been a tough gig growing Coomera in Northland, but Leah checks in with a grower as the soil is readied for the new season crops. And later we're taking you to central Otago to scratch pigs and talk wine with New Zealand actor Sam Neill. But first, let's find out what's happening on the land. Northland saw its first real September day this week, with four seasons in one day. However, the month has been kind to farmers with steady weather conditions. Not up and down as it normally would be this time of the year, which has been great for the tail end of calving. Ground conditions are drier than average, there's not a lot of grass, but there's been a lot of sunshine hours. And despite a dry period in Pukekohe in the middle of the month, warmer temperatures and residual soil moisture has stimulated crop growth. Many vegetables are in stronger supply at reduced financial returns to growers. Growers warn this situation may continue for a while. Typical spring weather has been the story
2: in Waikato, as the sky doesn't know if it's winter or summer. The end of August had our contacts stressed, with no grass or silage up their sleeve. Cows move to a 3-2 milking cycle and with a lot of hard work and a stroke of luck, grass conditions have gone from absolute crap to absolute hero. Last week had temperatures rising from 14 degrees to 21 some days and many farmers are coming out of the struggle and even getting ahead of their milk production targets. Nature seems to have played ball in Bay of Plenty this September. In saying that, there's been a lot of surface water on farms with up to 200 millimetres hitting the ground near Fakatane in the past week or so. This time of year, rain is welcome as it kick-starts a lot of growth, especially good when you're working up the ground to
1: get summer crops in, which is exactly what our contact was doing when we called. A nice warm month has been felt in King Country and grass is actually growing. Good frosts, nice dry days with decent sunshine has all been on the menu, plus the odd day of rain to the point where there was almost flooding a week ago. Those trying to dock lambs this week have been mucked around with inconsistent weather, although farmers around Tekuiti have finished docking for the season. It's been wet in Taranaki, and although there hasn't been high levels of rainfall, there have been constant wet days, with some farmers begging for sunshine, just to make the days less monotonous. Grass covers aren't looking very good for this time of the year. Coastal farms will be near, if not starting, mating. And those closer to the mountain than the sea are still about three weeks away from the mating season yet. There were three good weeks of weather on the east coast, but the last week of September
2: brought with it rain. With the water tables high, it only has to look like rain for the paddocks to be drenched. The rain this week was reminiscent of Cyclone Gabrielle. Communities were close to being evacuated and some roads were closed by surface flooding. It also brings anxiety and panic to some, especially children who were not over the events earlier in the year. But farmers are viewing it as a bit of a hiccup as temperatures reached 26 degrees last week. Three dry weeks at the start of the month saw Hawke's Bay reckoning with El Nino weather pattern said to be sweeping across the country. Stock were not getting the spring flush on them, and early-born lambs were well off the pace for being marketable. However, a bout of rain this week was enough to kick-start farmers into October. There's been well over a 100 millimetres of rainfall in the past week in parts of the region, yet our contact predicts in a month's time farmers will be looking for
1: moisture again. It's been a little drier in Manawatu, in fact some were saying there was getting too dry. However, the recent 40-plus millimetres of rain this week would have fixed that, and people are wishing for sunshine again. Livestock have been in good condition, as there hasn't been a shortage of feed, and farmers are reporting a good number of lambs, although most farmers are only halfway or at the tail end of lambing season. Warm days in Upper dried out everything from the pretty wet and miserable winter they'd had. Grass started growing, and you could feel and see the turning point of spring. It also bolstered milk production up, tracking better than it was last year. But as with much of the country, this past week has brought gnarly southerlies and rain. Although those on the flats who got about 30 millimetres were thankful as the plan was to irrigate next week. shows just how quickly conditions can change.
2: In Nelson, hop growers have been busy stringing, which is tying strings up to the trellis for the hops to climb up during the growing season. They're just starting to see a bit of initial growth appear for the later varieties, while earlier varieties kicked off about 10 days ago. A cold winter resulted in good plant dormancy, and a great start to spring has set up growers well, with plenty of moisture in the ground going into the hotter months. It's been incredibly windy in Marlborough this month, which dried things out. Half an inch of rain this week will help turn things around. Stock have fed well, and feed levels are OK for the moment, but it's been a bit cold to spark any decent grass growth. In the vineyards, bud burst is happening for the early varieties such as Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and growers are on the lookout for frosts with a
1: few cold mornings forecast in the coming weeks. It's been a good start to spring on the west coast, with decent showers followed by nice sunny days. Most farmers are through-carving and are busy disbudding or dehorning cows. Replacements are out in the field and thriving, but there's been delays in getting the bobbies off to the works, with farmers struggling to book pickup slots. The bulk of September in Canterbury has been dry and windy and had farmers feeling that they were staring down the barrel. Last Friday the weather turned though and since then temperatures have cooled and more rain has hit the ground. Growth is slow, however spring planting is in full swing with a range of crops going into the ground.
2: In North Otago, rain and snow has been welcomed by many. Farmers say it was timely, especially inland where things were starting to get dry and it will help set them up well just before the lambs start to arrive. Hoggets are being shorn and crops are being sown. In central Otago, some farms were left with flooding in recent weeks as a belt of rain moved across the South Island. New lambs had to be moved off river flats, but the deluge is soaked into the ground well and has done more good than harm. Dairy farmers are finishing up calving and are busy vaccinating and already looking ahead to mating in November.
1: There's plenty of feed around and milk production is tracking well. Southland was also hit with last week's heavy downpour, leaving farms that border rivers with flooding and infrastructure damage. People are rallying around them, though, to get repairs done as soon as possible so they can get the farms back up and running. Apart from the heavy rain, spring has been warm, prompting good grass growth heading into summer. With an El Nino weather pattern forecast, farmers in Southland aren't too worried as it tends to bring more moisture to the region than the rest of the country.
2: This is Country Life on RNZ National... 101 FM Although sun has been far from constant in Northland this season it was a sunny morning when we met Rua Wai Coomera grower Warwick Simpson at his farm in the heart of the Coomera growing district of Kaipara. As growers get set up for the new season Leah Tebbett asked Warwick how rain has affected the Coomera and what are the continuing implications.
3: We had to go back to November last year during that planting season, and that was a very wet planting season and really limited for how much we could plant because you need dry conditions to be, to be planting. So that was putting us in bad foot to start with. A lot of growers were down in the area they planted, down sort of you know 80%, that kind of thing. Uh, and then the cyclone happened at the start of February. Uh, so that was when we were just looking at starting to harvest. Uh, and for example, the crops on my farm here were flooded for about five days and you can imagine that causes a lot of rot and a lot of crop loss Uh, so we were, we had about 10% of our usual crop as a result after that rotting had taken its effect
4: Right, Um, that's a significant loss isn't it?
3: Absolutely, Uh, yep, certainly led to some good conversations with the bank to get things through for this season but yeah there's a range of effects on the different growers in the region because we've got 40 active growers growing Coomera in this region and yeah, we're right down to some growers lost absolutely everything. There's a large, you know, a group that's sort of about that ten percent, and then other people that maybe had forty percent loss. But it certainly affected everyone in some way. Yeah. Yeah,
4: and because I've heard whispers of, of people in like millions of dollars worth of deficit, because obviously they've lost their crop. So they don't have the money to then spend on on the season ahead. Is that the sort of financial troubles that, that a ten percent crop faces?
3: Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's I mean, it varies depending on the size of the grower, of course. But we definitely use the income from the previous season to pay for the next season, usually. And a lot of us lost, lost that income, so um, having to go to the bank to get that money to put this next season's crop in.
4: This week, you've you've said to me you're trying to to focus on seed bedding. Yep. How has that gone?
3: Uh, we made a pretty good start last week, and then the rain this week has, has stopped anything happening this week, uh, but it is yeah, definitely hoping to get all our seed beds in by the end of September, so looking forward to some fine weather coming up next week.
4: And, and what, what does seed bedding entail?
3: So seed beds, you use some kumara from the previous season, you cover them in dirt, or some people use sand and then put polythene over the top to try and get that heat up uh, and get them sprouting so they'll produce sprouts which then grow into what we call slips and then we cut those slips off when they're about 30 centimetres long and plant them out in the paddock and that's normally happening from mid-October onwards.
4: And if you're using the Kermida from from last season as a sort of propagation method I guess is what happened last season having an impact moving forward?
3: Yeah absolutely, it's so... Using myself as an example, um, because I only harvested about 10% of my usual crop, uh, a lot of that harvest has to go into the seedbeds t- to be able to produce something for this coming season. And we normally use about 5% of our crop in a normal year to be seedbed. So you can see how when you've only got 10%, that's only leaving 5%. And the numbers are getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> there are some growers that weren't able to harvest enough to cover all their seed needs. There has been a um, seed contingency scheme that's been running, so that's funded by MPI, they've provided just under $270,000 to provide funding for those growers that weren't able to harvest enough seed so that they can buy seed off other growers so they can get going again for this coming season.
4: How have retailers supported kumara growers as well?
3: Yep, so that price going up, that's obviously all part of it, you know, supply and demand, so little kumara, so that price has gone up, so at least what we do have is, is worth a good amount. I think the the best way to support is if you can afford to buy Kumara, then please do. We know it's expensive, so we know not everybody's going to buy it, and there's not going to be enough for everybody either. But if you can, please buy it. And then certainly, when you get into that next season, once the the price will come down, definitely support your growers, buy local Kumara. Yeah, keep eating it. There is some support coming from retailers, for example, Countdown has been providing work for employees from the pack houses because obviously it's a knock on effect the pack houses have a lot less work because there's a lot less Coomera. So Countdown's done some help there with our local pack house pro to provide jobs for those employees that have not had work at the pack house.
4: Hmm. Are consumers able to understand and what has happened?
3: Yeah, hopefully they understand that you know the amount of Coomera out there is is really limited. I I know our local packhouse is thinking about shutting down probably in October because they just won't have the kumara to pack whereas normally they'll keep going right through to January and to sort of link it into the next season harvest starting.
4: Wow so well, there's a lot of kumara coming out of this area then to, to be working all the way through to then.
3: Oh uh, yeah absolutely example we're a medium kind of size farm in a normal year we'd probably produce about 1300 bins and those those bins are normally about sort of eight or nine hundred kilograms and that's just off one medium farm so when you multiply that there's 40 growers out there there's definitely bigger than us um so there's a lot of kumara coming out here
4: how did you get into becoming a kumara farmer
3: through my dad uh so he's he's grown kumara all his life he's um just over 80 years old now but he's been growing kumara since he was a teenager yeah wow.
4: uh
3: so definitely grew up with it like talking to my dad it's the worst um, situation he's been through as well as he hasn't seen anything as bad as that right. that cyclone
4: that really puts it into perspective,
1: I think. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Kumara and Vegetables New Zealand director Warwick Simpson there.
1: We're heading back into the archives now to revisit the Central Otago vineyard of actor Sir Sam Neill. On a fine, crisp morning last December, Sally Round went for a stroll with him around Red Bank, his home in Central Otago, where grapes are grown for his label Two Paddocks. Mike Wing, his viticulturalist, was also there, checking on the canopy, which was lush and full, as the vineyard readied itself for summer. Sir Sam told Sally he'd just got back from Brisbane.
5: It was sulky and tropical, and, <laughs> and now we're in this nice, dry central tiger, central tiger climb, and I'm, I'm really enjoying being back. I was doing my day job up there, you know, with guns and getting shot and stuff like that, and now I'm back... <laughs> back among these peaceful vines and I couldn't be happier. What a contrast. Indeed, you what know. are you working on at the moment? Uh, it's a film called um, Bring Him To Me um, kind of gangster film and um, I don't know if it's just me but I love playing bad guys <laughs> That's, they're, they're, they're really rewarding um, but yeah here we are I'm back full time with the wine again Hello,
0: Bruce. And we're walking through a bit of an orchard here at the moment.
5: Yes. Tell about this? So we've got cherries and plums, and um, you know those those chestnuts that that you see roasting on the streets in in London, <laughs> <laughs> that remind me of Charles Dickens. I've actually got some quite extensive cherry orchards next door. Uh, But this is, you know, apricots and stuff I like to eat and I make jam at Christmas time. And I've got a veggie garden over there. Everything's organic here and uh, you can hear the birds enjoying themselves as a result.
0: The plan of the property here, the orchards, the choice of the trees, is that you?
5: Yes. um, This was originally a government farm. It was one of those experimental farms where they were trying to work out what crops work in central Otago and what don't so we still maintain some of those crops including lavender and up the hill there I have a lavender still, we make organic lavender oil and um, I like to bathe in uh, (laughs) like Cleopatra with lavender water in my bath water and and We we grow a lot of our own stuff here. We're not vegans, um, and I have have some sheep and some cattle. The main job with the cattle is actually all I have to do is poo, because we're very caught up with soil science here. Some good manure goes a long way when you're working on producing sustainable, rich soils. Do
0: you make brews out of the poo?
5: That's a question for Mike. Mike... Our cow manure, do we just put it straight on or do we make nice nice poo mixes? Uh, so one of the cow
6: composts that we make, we use eggshells from the chickens, crush them up into a flour, mix them with the cow manure and basalt rock dust for the silica, so you've got calcium, silica and nitrogen. Uh, but we bury that just in a shallow pit and we, um, we either use bacteria or fungi to break that down or we use worms as well, but you know, we're just using those core ingredients to, to make a Nutritious soil uh, conditioner, yeah.
0: Sounds delicious.
5: Yeah.
6: <laughs>
0: the key. Sam, what is happening on the vineyard at the moment?
5: Well, we're, f- I think, five or six days away from flowering, so it's always an unpredictable time of the year. We want, ideally, um, a nice dry spell so that uh, uh, we don't get any problem with flowering. That's, that's about a two-week period. It's, uh, it's scary, but kind of... scary in a nice way, time of the year and ideally we'd like things to stay dry but there's no guarantees You know, Mother Nature is a fickle creature and we're always sailing close to the wind That's the thing about growing wine in a cool climate, you've got to roll with the punches and and do what you can to mitigate and uh, prepare for those ups and downs
0: And what's the best time for you to be on the vineyard? What do you enjoy most?
5: Look, it's pretty much anything apart from dead midwinter you know there's that little little period it's before you can ski (laughs) and but it's after vintage and there's nothing much going on and we're just um we're just doing a bit of pruning and and uh, things things are fairly fairly dull I that's when I tend to think uh, um yeah nice job in uh, somewhere like Spain would be a (laughs) a good idea right now I don't prune myself. I leave that to Mike and his, his guys.
0: And how involved do you actually get in the process? I was Apart involved. from the drinking, I guess, From yeah. <laughs> <And> the tasting.
5: <laughs> the drinking and the tasting is very important. Um, uh, look, I think the farming side of wine is, is what excites me the most. But um, obviously I'm, I'm the most used when it comes to marketing and that kind of thing, I suppose. And there is that sort of thing although there's much less need for that now because we're very established we're on our 25th vintage um our brand is very well recognized i do make appearances at trade shows because our distributors like that when you turn up (laughs) so i like to show willing but you know we sell out every year that can be problematic in terms of Cash flow, but you know there are worse problems than than being sold out. I can tell you that.
0: I guess I want to know: Do you actually get your hands dirty here?
5: How much do I get my hands dirty, Mike? Let's be honest. <laughs>
6: Mike's <laughs> laughing over, to over here. To put to work, that's for sure. Do you? <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, he's, he's always in there with a, a bucket and a pair of snips over harvest at some point. I'm sure. Yeah.
5: I'm just establishing a new garden, so I'm very involved in my gardening at the moment, which which I absolutely love. So There's always a lot of things going on. It's not a monoculture here. It's not like one of those places you go and all you can see is vines to the horizon. We've got a lot of different things going on here. We've got black-faced sheep. I sort of inherited that proclivity from my father who loved his suffix. We have cattle as I I say. I've got a couple of pigs up there you might like to meet. Love to. There's some ducks who might like to make an appearance. They always like to be on radio.
0: <laughs> Shall we wander <laughs> up?
5: Let's do it. This is real central target country. I mean, we're physically about as far away from the sea as you can be in New Zealand. So, surrounding us are those bare Otago hills, and we like to keep it that way. I'm very involved in uh, the business of keeping wilding pines down, and I think more and more people in, in uh, central Otago subscribe to that now. Down that way is Dunedin, where I grew up, and over that way is Nirvana for me, that's you know, Fiordland and so on, which when I was growing up, there used to be a map at school that had a big area that said unexplored, <laughs> which is kind of a wonderful idea, really. Of course, it's now.
0: Pinot Noir is a real passion of yours. How did that come about?
5: My family was in wine spirits for 150 years, you know. And there's a long family tradition that goes with wine, with booze in general, I suppose. <laughs> and, but my particular interest in Pinot Noir actually started with uh, uh, another friend and mentor, James Mason, who introduced me to Burgundy in 1979. I'd never drunk anything like this. I'd, you know, the, he opened this great bottle. It was a Charlie Chaplin's favourite restaurant, oddly enough. And uh, it was like nothing I'd ever tasted before, I asked him what it was and he said, this is Burgundy my boy don't forget it it was uh, about 14 years after that I planted my first grapes here in Pinot Noir because Rolf Mills and um, you know, one or two others down here had established that Pinot Noir flourished here in what was already my favourite part of the world this is where I live and and the idea that I could grow my favourite wine in my favorite place was just such a lovely idea that i could couldn't resist it
0: we're looking out over a lake at the moment
5: this is our dam it's probably i don't know what do you think a couple of acres um this was established before i got here these are peking ducks Mm -hmm. so I, I, I go, mm-mm, crispy when, when I walk past. <laughs> and, and they hardly flinch because they know I'm a softy. No, they're, they're all my pets and I, I, I love them. That's Kylie Minogue there and Magda Shabansky and Jane Kennedy is the other one.
0: Does she like having a duck named after her? Does she know I, she has a duck named after her?
5: You know, I, Yeah, all sorts of people have had things named after them. I, I haven't had any blowback from that. You, it's been one or two unfortunate incident, incidents. Hugo Weaving, who was a ram of mine, died on the job. He just fell off the back of a ewe one day. And um, <laughs> he had to, we had to find a replacement for Hugo. Uh, I've got a nice little female coonie coonie who's called Brian, called after Brian Brown. Angelica isn't confused he's he's fathered quite a number of um little piglets yeah. oh and here's brian very excited <laughs> brian's to see at it.
0: the gate he's waiting has he been fed this morning brian, oh she brian i'm sorry yeah.
5: just let's get this right
0: <laughs> <laughs> so has she been fed and is that angelica there
5: that's angelica
0: she is, mag- he is magnificent.
5: Dear old boys, he's still there. I'm happy to see you uh, too. We've been friends for 15 years now. And uh, we have no secrets from each other. We sit down and have a chat with the sun. Oh, that's got us, got some of the native planting,
0: to right? Gosh, we're getting a magnificent view right around the basin here. And you've got vineyards in three different valleys in the yeah.
5: region. Yeah, substantially Central Tiger has three big valleys. Got the Alexandra Basin, the Cromwell Basin and uh, then Gibson Valley. So we're right in the middle of the Alex Basin here. And we can see as far as St Bathans, those blue remem- remembered hills over there. Graham said probably painting something over there as we speak. <laughs> and you can see our Pinot across that hillside there, just behind these trees is, is uh, our first Riesling paddock. And then down by the gates is the more recent Riesling.
0: Does the wine come from single vineyards or is it being blended?
5: We do both. Uh, We'll make a two paddocks blend. We balance our different vineyards against each other. And then in in a particular year, if one vineyard speaks to us and says, I've had a really good time (laughs) this year, we'll make a very limited single vineyard from, from that. 150 cases, perhaps.
0: What characteristics does the geology of this land bring to your wine?
5: Well, first of all, it's climate, and then it's soil. Nick Mills over at Ripon, he's a big believer in schist soils. You know how schist glints in the sun? And he thinks that perhaps that contributes to that special thing that central Otago has. But that's, that's a question for Mike as well. He's the, he's the guy with his hands in the soil.
6: Yeah, that's a good question. So the, what we are here down here, we're in quite a, a basin, so uh, these soils can be a little bit heavier than some of our other sites. So Bannerburn and Gibson are, are more on terraces, uh, which are more schist orientated, where this is sort of glacial outwash uh, with, with loam over the top, so it's a bit more grunty. But the schist soils definitely are the ones that produce probably our top wines. Uh, and they can, can be quite raw, so there's, there's virtually no topsoil to them. Um, so it's a real challenge there to try and make sure we've got the right cover crop mix and we're, and, and we're producing uh, enough nutrient via that to be able to feed the plants sustainably. Building soil, making sure the soil's lively and, and, and cycling, and then the vines will do well and the fruit will be complex. And...
0: What are the advantages of having several different vineyards around here in the three different valleys?
6: Um, definitely one of the advantages is that the growth stages are always different so we can move our gang of, of employees from one vineyard to the next and, and they're all at different stages so by the time we get round to Gibson which is the, the latest of the sites we're getting back to the Alexandria vineyards which tend to be the, the first ones to tee off so uh, it's, it's a nice cycle to be able to move from block to block and just get everything done um, and yeah, they yeah they all throw up their different challenges and you know, if we get hail in Alexandria we don't get it in Bannetburn, if we get a bad frost in Gibson, we don't get it in Bannetburn. But...
5: The last two or three years we've planted about four or five thousand natives because I'm devoted to native birds. This season it's been so vigorous. And I've never seen the place look so green. And Mike and all his guys have done a fantastic job. It's so rewarding to come home. I love it.
0: So you will eventually come home for
5: good? No, I, I love acting too much to, to, to go, I'm retired. That's never going to happen. And, and the balance of, my, of that life against my rural life is such that I would never want to unbalance one against the other. One offsets the other, one, one kind of mitigates the other, one, one enhances the other. It's a double life, if you like, but it's a, it's a very rewarding one. It's a very rich life. I'm very grateful.
0: What does the world know about New Zealand wine in general? Because you're mixing with the high flyers. Do they know that New Zealand is a great wine producer?
5: I think there's more and more awareness around the world about New Zealand as, as, as a wine-producing nation. Uh, I, and I've, I've just been involved in a, a, a little sort of mini film about, about wine in New Zealand. I suppose I have a sort of informal role as a kind of, you know, semi-ambassador for New Zealand wine abroad. And I, yeah, I enjoy that. It's part of my function, I suppose, yeah.
0: And there are some high-profile vineyard proprietors around here that must all help with the marketing of central Otago wines in particular.
5: The one thing that I, I'm very sort of hypersensitive to is when, when people call my wine celebrity wines. Like I'm, you know, I'm Olivia Newton-John. And I put my name on a label. It's never been that. I've been deeply involved in what we do here since day one, and fully committed to what we do. And it's not nothing to do with my profile, really. It's to do with the work and the the people I have working with me. Like Mike and Jackie here, and Dean Shaw, my winemaker, obviously, he's very involved with Mike. They come and wander around the place and mutter things at each other. But uh, above and beyond me, he knows all four vineyards intimately. Oh, lovely sound. Good, good, good. Two paddocks Pinot Noir 2021.
6: 25th vintage.
5: 25th vintage, yeah.
0: That must be a good feeling. A
5: quarter century on the board.
6: That's a really good example of Central Otago and what we do. Look, it's a, it's a balance of Gibson, Burn and Alexandra, and all these strengths that go into it. So, we're getting a little bit of forest floor. There's some 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 ripe fruit there. It's it's brooding a little bit. Um, uh, lovely t- integrated tannin profile uh, with, a, with some great length and good finish.
5: I think we're well prepared for the future. Um, I'm touching wood now, of course. I'm touching a used wine barrel. (laughs) We like to taste our wine out. Um, Everything, uh, the 22 is still in the barrel, and that's looking wonderful. We're all a team, and we all know where we're going, and um, we're brimming with confidence. But then again, we're New Zealanders, so we're not full of ourselves, Okay.
1: (laughs) Sir Sam Neill and Mike Wing on Red Bank Vineyard in central Otago. That feature from our archive was first broadcast in December last year.
5: I'm Robin
0: Green, I live at Tehoro Beach, and I have to say that Country Life is one of my favourite programmes. Country Life on RNZ National.
2: Barkers of Geraldine has been filling kiwi pantries with jams, syrups, sauces and other condiments and beverages since the late 1960s. The business was founded by Anthony Barker and his wife Gillian as a way of supplementing their farm income, and they've never looked back. Inspired by his father's passion for innovation, their son Michael became general manager in the 1980s and, with the future in mind, a new factory was built. Barker's continues to grow to this day, but Michael's taken a step back. Cosmo Kentish Barnes caught up with them at the Geraldine Museum. Where a permanent exhibition celebrates the iconic family business.
7: Well, we've got some of the early gear that um, we used in the in the in the winemaking process back in the 1970s, and, and we've got a, a full-size replica of my father stirring a copper, an old laundry copper, full of elderberries heated with his own diesel burner with a, with a, with a vacuum cleaner um, Venturi uh, blast system. And so he, he was very inventive by nature and he struck upon the idea of making fruit wines. He, he knew he could make all the equipment himself and he, could, uh, he, he knew how to make wine because he'd been making wine since he was a boy. Uh, and uh, so that, that's how Barker's Wines was born. And at the time, uh, he and Gillian were sheep farming. They were sheep farming in Pleasant Valley. And of course, the interesting thing is that 54 years later, the business is still located on the old family farm in Pleasant Valley, which is eight kilometres from Geraldine, where mum and dad started off as, as farmers and then fruit wine makers. Mm. We will be heading to the factory
8: soon, but um, explain what other things we can see here. Well, here you
7: can see a wide range of the early fruit wines, which were made largely from elderberry and also strawberry and gooseberry and blackberry and raspberry and apricot, and uh, the Mountain Thunder, which was our mould wine, which was developed many years ago, and our liqueurs, creme de cassis, creme de framboise. All of these products were deleted around about the turn of the century after 31 years of manufacture, also here, we can see the specialty preserve range, which was also deleted, um, which was called Anthony Barker's Preserves, which you used to buy in specialty <laughs> stores throughout the country in the, in the 1990s. Uh, a lot of work went into that range. But when we launched into supermarkets around the turn of the century, uh, only 24 years ago, I might add, we, we really got moved most of the range into supermarkets and out to specialty stores. And that's when Barker's, the, the, the wide range of Barker's yeah. products really kicked off. But in the early days, Michael says the sweetest rewards came from another revenue stream. The real success was as a visitor attraction because everyone that came got offered numerous tipples of an ever-expanding variety of very extremely interesting wines and liqueurs and aperitifs. And they got given a guided tour around the very interesting engineering uh, structures and, and vessels and contraptions. <laughs> it, it was the biggest, most significant tourist attraction in South Canterbury at its time. Mm. And 20,000 visitors a year used to come. And it was as a tourism attraction that we really survived because that's why people bought the wine. Yes. And that would have put the Barker's name on the map. Yes, And uh, it certainly got us started and gave us a launching pad for when we launched our blackcurrant syrup and the jams and the chutneys and all the products you see in the supermarkets today. Mm. Going back to
8: the farming days, the interest your dad had in fruit started with foraging, I guess, foraging for berries locally.
7: Elderberries growing in the riverbed right next to us were, were the first port of call every year. We as kids used to have to go and pick elderberries. And then during the rest of the year, we used to have to show all the people, all the guests around the, the winery and give them tastes. And uh, so it was a real cottage industry, but it was based on foraging free fruit. We also got wild blackberries, and, and also we bought regional fruits uh, from Waimati, which at the time was a significant fruit-growing region, and other areas of Canterbury, um, particularly black currants, when they were first put in in large areas in the 70s and 80s. How did you get involved with, with the business? From the age of about 13 or 14, we were serving in the shop and helping out. But uh, I went off to Lincoln and did a horticultural science degree and hoping to go overseas and do a winemaking degree and anology degree. But when I got back from Lincoln, I never really left because there was a need for me to help. And I spent 10 years totally head down and in trying to build a business which was very fragile in those days. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So you were working very closely with your parents? Dad and I worked together every day, and uh, all the staff were, were treated to morning tea, lunch and afternoon tea in the house, in the big farm kitchen. Uh, we'd seat up to 30 people in there, and that's how, for the first 20 or 30 years, that's how the business evolved, with that very close intimacy between all levels of the business. Mm-hmm. and It was very hard to know who was actually in charge back in those days. <laughs>
8: several years ago barkers of geraldine found themselves
7: in a jam that was not of their making we had a large shareholder that had invested in the business um, to help us through one of our growth stages uh, and they wanted to pull their money out and do other things with it so we were caught in a bit of a bind so we had to look around for a major investor to invest and our search became worldwide and we were very lucky to secure the what is actually the world's largest premium manufacturer of premium jam, called Bon Maman, uh, French for grandmother. So we uh, hooked up with this company and uh, they invested in us and it's been just tremendous because of the uh, technology transfer and international connectivity in Mm. in all respects.
8: Were you a bit concerned that they might want to move the factory
7: away from Geraldine? No, I, ne- I never was, because I'd been to France to, shall we say, interview them, to, to meet with them, and they were interviewing <laughs> me, and uh, it was very clear that their ethos, a family business, uh, based in rural France, in a town even smaller than Geraldine, and that is where their major factory is, and it was clear that they were not in, of the corporate mould of shift to town. We, we spoke the same language, and they see no problem at all uh, having a factory in the country. And in fact, they see it as a benefit. Is Barker's the biggest employer in uh, Geraldine? Uh, Yes, it would be. Uh, Of course, uh, Fonterra have a big factory uh, in between Geraldine and Tamuka, so we'll call them Tamuka aligned, and we now have, I think, between 250 and 300 staff, and most of them drive to work along country roads to our factory still on the corner of the family farm.
8: Are there generations of
7: people who work there? There's a number of examples of three generational families, and that institutional knowledge is retained and the passion for the brand is there. And it's it's a unique business in a unique location with a unique community of interest. Mm. And that's one of the reasons, one of the key reasons why the Barkers brand, I think, shines so brightly on supermarket stores, because it has these things happening that are driving it in the background. On the short
8: drive from the museum to the factory, I pass a dairy farm
7: and a couple of sheep farms. We're on the road up to the, to the Mona Gorge and we're looking at the Four Peaks mountain range just straight ahead of us there. Uh, the Four Peaks, which is we, we look at every day and all the staff sit in the staff room and look up at the mountains.
8: In fact, I can see a number of staff having their lunch now and you're right, this is what they see. Snow on the mountains, Beautiful, pastoral countryside. It's gorgeous. And the
7: Timona River runs right alongside us, uh, which was the source of our elderberries in the early days. Yeah, and the factory is overgrown. Um, I mean, we're looking at the house, which is used as offices. We're standing right beside the farmhouse. The farmhouse. Where you lived as a child. That's right. And uh, it wasn't a big walk to work. uh, (laughs) And it wasn't a big walk for the staff to come and have morning tea and lunch either. (laughs) And then we, uh, we built a, a Skyline garage which is still the reception and, and, that, and then was another building which was built as a warehouse when our woolshed shed burnt down and it's up on piles and that's now an office too. So this isn't glossy Auckland, uh, glassy buildings, this is a rural country uh, HQ. Are you still living on the farm? No, I live a few miles up the road. I think they call them kilometres these days. <laughs> <laughs> What's happened to the, uh, to the land? We've only got 30 acres left here now, which gives us room to irrigate our wastewater from the factory and to have room for expansion. And uh, the challenges of setting up a factory on a farm means that you don't have running water, you don't have a connection to sewage, you don't have fibre, you don't have enough electricity running down the roadsides. You basically have to invest in all your utilities and services. But we're so proud to still be. On a corner of our family farm.
9: Hi Kim. Hi.
7: Kim Whitman turns up.
8: She's the fruit procurement and research and development manager.
9: So we have a number of growers right throughout New Zealand from the top of the North Island where we get tamarillo and strawberries from right down to soon to get blueberries out of Tuatapri. We have five production lines we can process fruit in many different ways and it means that we can have that innovative outcome for the consumer. Mm. So how many products
8: do you produce here?
9: About 800 different finished goods.
8: That must be quite challenging. It is. From a processing point of view.
9: Yep from around uh, 1100 different raw materials so in product development it's the biggest pantry you can ever think of for making new recipes.
8: And it's not just for uh, supermarkets and consumers?
9: No, so we have three different markets. We put product in for supermarkets, which will be a branded product that you see, as well as food service and cafes with their um, food service ranges and then also industrial customers. So a lot of the product that comes out of Barkers will be used in other products that you see in the supermarkets.
8: It's too loud inside the factory for my sound device. So Michael describes
7: the production process from outside the main doors. There's a flow from the receipt of fruit to the dispatch of finished goods. So there's a area dedicated to weighing out. And if the fruit arrives frozen, then we have to thaw it and weigh it out and prepare the fruit. And then each batch of ingredients, which includes the fruit and all the raw materials, progresses into the cooking area where it in many cases it'll be tipped into a large steam kettle and heated up according to the recipe which is just like following mm. Alison Holst's recipe step one step two yep. step three and uh, at the end of the day you pack it out into your jars hot then you put the lids on hot and invert them it's, 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 it's home preserving because mm. we are a fruit and vegetable preserver on a huge on scale a, on a large scale But it all starts just like in a home pantry where you're preserving fruits and hot filling them because you're not adding preservatives. And then you have to cool the jars down through water cooling tunnels, pack them onto pallets and dispatch them. So, yeah, it's a continuous process from one end to the other over a couple of days.
8: Mm. And uh, we can see the engineering department from where we are standing. I guess they have a busy time repairing and developing new machines. There's
7: a lot of machinery in there. And uh, when you've got that complication of... 1100 raw materials being made into about 800 finished products and that's happening every week every month. There's huge complexity and a lot of engineering to keep the the production lines, there's a lot of changing over production lines from one pack format to another pack format to another pack format from one fruit to another fruit to another fruit. So yeah, big engineering team to keep the place going. Now in front of the staff room is where you had your farmyard. Yes, I can still in my mind's eye, see the sheep yards and the granary and the wool shed and the implement sheds and the workshop which was the hub of the farm uh, we had a big fire um, I think I was at Lincoln College at the time and uh, I wasn't here but I think a battery in the truck created a fire and the whole thing burnt down in the middle of the night and it was a very serious time for the business trying to recover from that.
8: Hello. Behind the factory, a gate opens into a sleepy paddock.
7: This is uh, part of the old farm, and as I said, we've still got 30 acres here. You can see those ponds there, lined with polythene. That's where the wastewater from the factory is stored. When did you put these ponds and wastewater systems in? Oh, these have been in for 20, 30 years, uh, and we gradually keep expanding them or whatever, but... uh, We've had to front foot this many years ago.
8: Yeah. We are walking up to the large ponds, and they
7: are, what about, 10 metres by 80 metres? Oh, look, I, I, I can't even remember the calculations, yeah. but they're large, and the water in here has is the water that's been used in the factory, so when you're washing down equipment and washing down the floors, you pick up a bit of fruit, skins and waste and so in here we're ready it's just water with a small level of fruit fruit sugars so it's great stuff to irrigate to land because the uh, microbes in the soil love it Mm. but we adjust the pH so that it's the right alkalinity when it's irrigated and uh, we irrigate it to land. So does it go back on to the local farmland? Yep, some onto our land and some onto a neighbour's land. Oh I bet the neighbour's quite happy about that. Well, look, it does provide water in the summer, and as I said, the very low level of sugars from the fruit are very welcome uh, to the microbes in the soil, so it promotes soil health. And beyond the ponds, we can see some paddocks. See some irrigation and baleage. You can see a little bit of irrigation just below those eucalypts in the middle foreground. And just in front of us here is a wetland with uh, rushes growing in it. What happens in here? Well, there's, there's a whole lot of fine gravels in here and uh, huge millions and billions of microorganisms live on the surface area of all the gravels and of the roots of these rushes and sedges which are growing in it. And this means that as the effluent flows in from a gallery at one end and flows through the gravels, it is broken down progressively uh, and what's coming out the other end is, is, is virtually clear water. Mm. But what's coming in at the top end is straight out of the loo. <laughs> Luckily we've got the land space to do this sort of thing. Yeah. A well-fed garden. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) yes, exactly. Couldn't put it better myself. Michael Barker there,
2: talking to Cosmo at the Barker's farm-based factory near Geraldine, where the business also has a new food shop and eatery. Now we've got a quiz to give away a book Michael's written about the Barker's journey. It's called 50 Years Preserved. And the question for you is, what's the name of the mulled wine that Michael mentions in this story? Now, email the answer to country
1: at rnz.co.nz and the first correct answer wins. And don't forget you can also go to our webpage for more info on the stories that you've heard today and photos of the people behind the voices. The address there is rnz.co.nz rnz.co.nz/countrylife. If you've missed anything, you can listen again and you can delve into our archives for loads more stories about rural New Zealand and its people, like Sir Sam Neill and his vineyard. And you can also subscribe to Country Life as a podcast. You can find it on any podcast platform. Well, that's it for now. Ka kite anō.
2: Until next week,
1: goodbye. See ya.